There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 6th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Now, in just over a month from now, on the 8th of March, you're going to be asked to vote in two referendums, which, if passed, will change our constitution. The first referendum concerns the concept of family in the constitution. The second referendum proposes to delete an existing part of the constitution and instead insert new text, providing recognition for care provided by family members to each other. You will have two separate votes on whether you wish to make the proposed changes to the current constitution. First of all, people should ask themselves whether what they're reading is an opinion or a fact. And and that's important because a lot of what's been said to date is opinion. And obviously debate is generally around people's opinions. Um, And we've set out, I think, some good questions in the booklet. How do I know this is true? Who's telling me? Have they produced any evidence? Have they linked what they're saying to the text of the Constitution? Have they linked it to the text of the referendum? Have they linked it to what we've said? Have they linked it to to commentators that they trust? And is there any way that I can act to confirm it for myself? So these are the kind of questions people should ask themselves our, our frequently asked question part of the website will, will, we hope, explain certain provisions of the Constitution and certain questions that arise, and we keep that up to date in the light of questions as they arise. Um, but th- I think it's important, the first thing to ask yourself is, is this somebody's opinion or is this person giving me a fact? And if so, where does the fact come from? What's the source of it? Right, now that's uh, the CEO of uh, the Electoral Commission, Justice Marie Butler, and we'll try to give you the facts of what it is that is being proposed when you go to vote. Uh, Hopefully you'll be well informed. Today we'll be hearing arguments on both sides and we'll begin with a call for you to vote yes and yes in the two referendums. Thomas Byrne, Minister of State, is Fianna Fáil's Director of Elections. A very good morning to you, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, We've very little time to inform ourselves uh, at this stage with just over a month to go before polling day. Uh, Can you explain to people what it is that is being asked of them, please? Uh, Thanks very much, Michael. And I just want to wish you all the best in covering the referendum because unlike social media, unlike even the print media, you have very strict legal obligations to inform your listeners. So I definitely recommend people listen to the radio watch television uh, because they will know that they're getting a kind of a balanced coverage of it and I want to welcome that and, and to thank you for covering this. Look, this isn't like a European treaty referendum where there's you know maybe a short wording of the referendum but behind that is a very large European treaty. Here all of the wording is, is right in front of you and the, the referendum commission will be setting out 
the exact wording in a leaflet to every single house. And I urge people to read that leaflet because there's nothing really more than the wording that's in front of you. And I think it's very easy to make a judgment when you can read plain language yourself, as pretty much everybody can. There's two referendums coming up. We're being asked to vote on the 8th of March in two, and I'm calling for a yes vote in both. The first referendum concerns the concept of the family in the Constitution. And the second referendum proposes to delete parts of the Constitution and insert new text, providing recognition for care provided by family members to each other, as you've just said. Okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. Under the family amendment, at the moment the Constitution only recognises families, describes a family as founded on marriage. So the Constitution doesn't recognise as a family, lone parent families or families where the parents are unmarried, which is quite a significant proportion of people, and it's about half and half in terms of the number of children uh, that are in such families. A yes vote on the family referendum would mean that families based on marriage and families based on other durable relationships would be given constitutional recognition. That's the but wording that has proven contentious so far, isn't it? Uh, that families are founded on durable relationships, uh, and that would replace how families are, are founded uh, through marriage. On marriage, that's right. So to recognise the various types of uh, families that are out there, that, that that is the reality of Irish society at the moment. And these are issues that the Supreme Court has grappled with in the past, that the European Court of Human Rights has grappled with in the past. But first and foremost, in terms of giving support to families, in terms of giving recognition to families, in terms of um, providing for families, that's the job of the Oireachtas. So the Oireachtas has been doing this work, and I think what we need, I think, now is a constitutional framework as a kind of a backbone uh, to that. And I think it is wrong at the moment that families based on marriage are treated as families, actually, whereas other families simply are not defined as families in the Constitution. Okay, and what would that mean in terms of uh, rights after death? Uh, We've seen a very high-profile case uh, before we make uh, this change. Will that mean that people who are not married, uh, if living together, would have uh, the same rights uh, after death? Well, that case was actually based on the rights of the children, not on the family, because the family wasn't based on marriage. So they didn't win that case because of their family status or because there was some discrimination there. The family is founded on marriage under the Constitution at the moment. So that case really concerned the rights of the children, uh, which is a different thing. So I'm not sure that it is entirely relevant to this. I think it's important to remember as well, even if we pass this and say that we do recognise under family other families, the Constitution will always and still as it says, continue to protect, guard with special care and guard against attack. That's in the Constitution and will remain in the Constitution as well. Mm. Um, but will people who are not married have uh, the same rights after death as people who are married, um, whether that's uh, inheritance rights or to be treated as next of kin, uh, for that matter, before uh, someone's demise? Well, well, first of all, if someone dies, they can make a will and within the law they can leave their property to whoever they want. Even if you're not married, even if it's a, a, a son or a daughter or a, a partner who's, who's not married to you, already the law provides that if you're going to continue to live in the home, you get a tax benefit, the same as uh, if it was in the, in the normal way it was left to a wife, if, if you're going to continue living in the home. That's already there. There are already laws as well around people who are cohabiting, who, you know, where the relationship breaks up in terms of providing for that person. Those laws exist since 2010. So already the Oireachtas has been doing a lot of this work in providing for it. Um, I think what's happened in this referendum so far is that there's been a lot of fear-mongering expressed about the Supreme Court. 
The Supreme Court only comes in, Michael, in the really tricky cases where the Oireachtas hasn't made provision for something, where the people themselves haven't made provision in some cases. Uh, mm. it, it may have to go to court. But it's really in the rare cases. And quite frankly, the Supreme Court has been grappling with these issues, and they're, they're difficult cases. The European Court of Human Rights has been grappling with these issues for many, many times, and the term that they use in Strasbourg in that court uh, is a de facto family. And there have been Irish cases uh, on that as well. Mm. But I think that, that I think to confuse the normal role of a Supreme Court in a democracy in terms of interpreting the Constitution to say that this is something to be feared is wrong because the reality is the first protocol in terms of providing for families is the families themselves. Then the Oireachtas, which is the TDs and Senators, have every week of the year uh, we, 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 we look at laws in this area and in, in other areas as well. The Constitution is like a backbone for mm. society. It's how we reflect society. And if there's something wrong with your hand, Michael, you don't have to always go to the backbone. Something wrong with your foot, you don't have to go to the backbone. Mm. But it reflects who we are. And every day we work on other areas uh, of law, whether it's just ministerial regulations, whether it's laws in the Oireachtas, without actually looking up the Constitution. So what the Constitution does is it gives us a framework. And yes, some cases may go to the Supreme Court, but that happens every, every day of the week anyway. Um, and it's not something to be feared. Sure. Is there a definition of what a durable relationship means? Well, in the, in the first instance, that'll be up to the Oireachtas, actually, to decide what durable relationships are and what rights we give. But at the moment, uh, the reality is that under the Constitution, the family is defined as only based uh, on marriage. But that's very so easy not- under, to understand, because uh, a marriage begins on the day that two people get married. Uh, and forgive me for uh, me stating the obvious, uh, but that's the point. It is obvious. A durable relationship is not as obvious. I mean, could you envisage a situation, let's say, where somebody dies uh, and leaves behind a, a lot of property, a lot of money, and uh, somebody else claims, well, that was my partner, but the children of that part- person say, no, they weren't partners. They had gone on a couple of dates. Well, look, the, if, what, what, what you're bringing up what is an extreme case, and indeed, the, and I'm not accusing you of on any mm. side in this, but the, the no side will bring up all of these cases that are complicated. And yes, there will be some complicated cases that will have to go to the courts. But divorces go to the courts where there can't be agreement already. Separations can go to the courts and, under the Judicial Separation Act, but they're only where agreement can't be reached already. Mm. Divorces have to go to the court, but oftentimes there will but be, what a, would the court, there uh, sure, be an agreement. But surely the court would, would need something tangible to rule on. Uh, and I suppose is, that's the point of my question. My what is, no, what my does it mean, when, or, or how do we define a durable relationship? Is that a couple uh, who were living together, uh, who were living together for six months, who were living together for ten years, who met last week and got on like a house on fire? I think you'll have. To, I think you'll have to sort of leave that to you know what the word durable means, which is lasting. Um, that is it. But what we're trying to do here is not to create legal complications not to create difficult situations, but to recognise, actually, that many of those situations already exist. Mm. And, we ha- and, and in the first instance, it will be for the Oireachtas to interpret this, which we've already really begun to do when you look at the Civil Partnerships and Cohabitation Act, uh, when you look at other provisions that's made for, for example, lone parents in the social welfare system. There's mm. all sorts of uh, issues. Adoption is another area which is massively complicated. Okay, and you'd and expect... Yes, from, and yes, from time to time, mm. these cases can come before the courts. But the reality is that the vast majority of these types of situations uh, are loving relationships, are maybe long and forever lasting relationships, 
between couples? With no, between with, with no with no difficulties, uh, except the normal difficulties mm. that every relationship has, but no no ending difficulties. And that's the vast majority of marriages in the country. And I would mm. say as well, it's the vast majority of what we will call durable relationships. Okay, so what we're trying to what we're trying to do in the constitution is say that these not. You're focusing on the exceptions to the rule. Okay. But the reality is that all across this region listening to us today are very happy families, mm. very contented families. I know, but you do, need, you, you married, do need to focus on... Married, but Minister, but who, but in fairness... Who have, who have, who have no constitutional recognition. Okay. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay, but Minister, in fairness, you do look to, have to look at the minutiae of uh, any uh, constitutional uh, amendment because there can quite often be unforeseen circumstances. One of the possible unforeseen circumstances that was raised by former Attorney General Michael McDool is that this term, durable relationships, while it would apply to couples, it, it could apply to people who have more than two in the relationship. There could be three people in the relationship or more. Troubles is the word he used, but polygamous uh, relationships. Uh, and that that could be recognised under the Constitution. Is Michael McDool wrong? I think he's wrong, just like he was wrong last year when he stated as fact that the Judicial Appointments Bill was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court begged to differ with him and declared it constitutional uh, only in the last few weeks. Um, so I think he's wrong. I mean, the former PD leader takes a contrarian stand on, on many, many issues. Polygamous and polygamy, uh, polygamous relationships and polygamy are not recognised under Irish law. Um, they haven't been recognised under the European Court of Human Rights, which is you know, has had similar issues to grapple with mm. and has recognised families other than other than marriage. Um, a polygamous institution is not what's envisaged under this. And I think people should recognise that in every single referendum, and I've been on lots of referendum debates on your show, mm. there's so much scaremongering. Um, nearly all of those referendums passed. Can anybody remember any of the scaremongering coming through? It, it, it never happens. But we, unfortunately, during a campaign, mm. uh, we have to deal with it. And I would completely knocked that on the head. Okay, that's the family Um, amendment. Can I just move on briefly, Minister, and I don't mean to cut you short, but time is tight, to the care amendment, because this is this archaic uh, attitude uh, apart uh, from uh, the constitutional recognition of who gives care in the home, because we all grew up believing that that was women's work, uh, that the state recognises that by her life within the home, women gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved and therefore the state will endeavour that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. That The proposal is to change those uh, wordings. Yeah, and can I just actually slightly misquote it, I'm not going to okay. fault on that, yeah. um, but very slightly, and I think it actually makes my point, because it's, it says the state recognises that by her life within the home, you said women give to the state. Okay. It actually says woman, yes. woman mm-hmm. gives to the state. Mm-hmm. And to me, like that's, is that a, a species, you know, it's, it's, it's a very strange language. And I think it's not, it's, it's, it, it needs to go, in my opinion, and it needs to be really confined to the dustbin of history. This article has never done anything for women. And the reality is, again, as I said already, the constitution is like a backbone. It's who we are as a society. And clearly, I think anyone, if you're, if, if you're saying that life within the home of woman or the neglect of duties by mothers, duties in the home by mothers, um, I think that's outdated language, mm. and a yes vote means in that referendum that this language will be deleted. And, and replace, some would say, with other questionable language uh, because uh, it, it will be related to the provision of care by members of a family, but that the state 
shall strive to support such provision. People are, are concerned that that's not strong enough, uh, that uh, the state uh, should do more than just strive, in other words. Well, I think the point is, I mean, and there's lots of different words in the Constitution about what the state should do. Generally speaking, the Constitution, as I keep saying, is, is the backbone. It's how the, how the state works. How we actually implement policy, how we help and support people through, for example, the social welfare system, through the disability system. That's not a matter for the Supreme Court generally. It's not a matter for the Constitution. It's a matter for the Oireachtas and for public debate and democracy and the allocation of the tax money that comes in in the fairest possible way. And that's a political question, not necessarily a constitutional question. Mm. So again, here what we're doing is simply trying to reflect what, what the country's like, um, but also to say, well, this is something that the state uh, should be doing, which is, re- first of all, recognises the care that different people and families provide, uh, and also saying that we should strive to support the provision of that care. How we actually implement that then, it's like the other amendment that I mentioned, the Oireachtas is the first port of call in all of these things. Okay. Not necessarily the Supreme Court. I think when people talk about the Supreme Court there, first of all, the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution every day of the week, but it doesn't actually get into the nitty-gritty of... The, you know, the care of the lands needs to be 10 euro higher or whatever the, whatever the, the debate and the, the, the mm-hmm. one, but, but yeah, whatever the sure. particular debate at the yeah. time is yeah. in matters of the Iraq. Okay. Um, you're asking people to vote yes, yes. You're Director of Elections for Fianna Fáil <coughs> excuse me, over the course of the next few weeks in the run-up to polling day on the 8th of March, which is International Women's Day. Uh, the Irish Independent reported uh, last week that there's fury in Fianna Fáil over its decision to appoint you, Minister, as the Director of Elections uh, because uh, it wasn't a woman who was chosen. Is uh, there anything in that that you've been hearing internally? Uh, the simple answer is no. Um, and the reality is that this constitution is going to pass. It's going to need the, the dads and lads in the, in the GEA terminology to, to pass it as well as, as well as women. It's going to need all of society coming together. Um, look, I suppose I was asked because I have experience in different referendums. I am a solicitor by training as well. Uh, I studied constitutional law under Mr Justice Gerard Hogan, so I have some experience in this area. Uh, and I certainly would be putting my best forward, foot forward with my party uh, to make sure that this is passed and that we do get a strong yes-yes vote okay. in the referendums coming up. we leave it there. In the next hour of the programme, we'll be hearing strong arguments for a no-no vote. But thank you indeed for joining us today. That is Minister of State Thomas Byrne, the Fianna Fáil Director of Elections before the two referendums that take place on the 8th of March. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, for all that's happened in RTE, nobody, it seems, has been held to account. On the other hand, 60 ordinary people every day find themselves in court. This is uh, according to Sinn Féin, uh, which feels it's not fair that ordinary people end up in court because they haven't paid their TV licence when nobody in RTE is uh, accountable for the misspending of millions of taxpayers' money. Uh, so what to do about this? Well, uh, the Sinn Féin party says uh, that they should take on board a, a recommendation and abolish the licence fee altogether and provide RTE with the funding that it needs through the Exchequer. I believe the RTE licence fee should be paid. Um, I don't accept the, the, the protestations that it shouldn't be paid. It should be paid. I think public service broadcasting um, is extremely important particularly in the world of social media. Um, And I have articulated very genuine concerns about full exchequer funding to media generally because, remember, remember, any new system of funding would not be just for RTE. 
It will be for all public service content in all media, including local radio and national television. Um, and uh, there are two issues with it uh, that I would identify, and they haven't actually been addressed by the Commission, and I spoke to the Commission about it afterwards when the report was published. One is the question of independence, and it's a very legitimate question. Uh, and, you know, Sinn Féin's instincts in terms of media have been fairly well demonstrated by your very um, serial suing of media in this country. And, um, and I'll just take a quotation. The number of legal actions that have been filed by Sinn Féin members points to a co coordinated campaign against the media in Ireland, unquote. Those are not my words, but those of a joint letter signed by 15 individuals and international press freedom organisations. Uh, and in November 2023, these um, freedom of expression advocates warned Deputy MacDonald that the spate of defamation cases being taken by Sinn Féin TDs is having a chilling effect on uh, democracy. And the signatories to the letter included the Daphne Caruna Galicia Foundation. That's the tarnished uh, Michal Martin. He was responding to Sinn Féin's uh, Pierce Doherty, who joins us now. Uh, and a very good morning to you, Pierce Doherty. Thank you morning, indeed you. Uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Two issues uh, there that uh, the tarnished uh, spoke about, and perhaps we'll talk about the second one in a, a moment. But when it comes to the licence fee, you'd abolish that tomorrow, would you, uh, and replace it with exchequer funding? Yeah, Mary Lou MacDonald outlined uh, our position uh, last year uh, where she believed that the Commission on the Future of Media, this is a commission that was established by the government, it was uh, reported back in 2021. Um, the report has been sitting on the government's desk and they have done nothing about it for the last three years. And they reported before there was any scandal in, in RTE, or at least that we knew of uh, in RTE, and they recommended that the TV licence be abolished, that it was outdated, that there, for many, many reasons they mm. recommended it be abolished, which we may go into. Uh, and they recommended that RTE and public sector broadcasters, but, but also those who provide public sector content, which are like local radios and other uh, media, um, are adequately funded. And actually they showed that there would be an increase required in terms of the level of funding, but they believe that should be funded through Exchequer uh, expenditure. So what's happened with the scandal in RTE has just kind of fast-tracked this, if you want to call it that, because, uh, you know, what we've seen in the in the last year is that uh, large numbers of people have decided not to pay the TV licence. At a point in time last year, it was 30% of those eligible to pay the TV licence were refusing to do so. I think it finished off last year about 25%, one in four. And we have the situation, as you've said, that you have 60 have been brought before the courts every day, facing up to a thousand euro fines and terms in prison. So we have this ludicrous scenario where people are taken to prison and then released after an hour or so. And these people, in the main, were paying their TV license for years, but they have lost faith in, uh, in RTE. They have looked at the fact that there's no accountability there. Yeah. And they've stopped doing so. So, so basically, this forces us to deal with the issue that the commission asked us to deal with three years ago, and that is to get rid of the TV license. It's not fair because, like, somebody who's going into the local post office and has been gathering stamps for the last year, you know, and is finding it difficult maybe to get the 160 euro to pay the TV license, is paying the same fee to have a TV as the person who is a government minister, a government TD, a, a TV, or somebody who's really wealthy. Like, and it's not. So it's a blanket. It's an unfair uh, charge on 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 people, and that's why we believe it should be got rid of, and it should be got rid of immediately. Uh, and what should happen to the people who don't pay their TV license uh, at, at the moment? Uh, should they be prosecuted? 
Well, look, we've always we've never argued that there should be, you know, that people shouldn't be paying their TV license, um, you know, the TV license like any other fee or charge mm. was uh, is a charge with legally set up, and it should therefore people should should be paying it. What we have now is a scenario where we argue that it should be abolished immediately. Mm. So what we want to do is we want to, you know, stop having people to pay their TV license. And in that context, we shouldn't be tying up the courts. We but but be obviously an awful lot of people aren't paying their TV, li- TV license therefore if 60 people are in court. But I, I mean, should they be in court? Should they be charged and prosecuted? Not not in this scenario. Absolutely not in this scenario. As I said, this is not this is something unique. Did, did people wake up one morning and decide, well, one in four people who were paying their TV license for years up until now decided, you know something, I might just stop paying this TV license. They didn't do that. They looked at what's happened in mm. RT. They looked at the senior executives of RT. They looked at how they were using their okay. money in terms of slush mm. funds. And therefore, we need to draw a line under this. All here. right. I, 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 I'm as angry with RT as everybody else. Uh, should I pay my TV license? First of all, a legal charge should be paid by everybody in the state. That's 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 clear. Okay. No, no politician is going to advise people to go out and break the law. What we're saying is that that charge actually should be abolished. And for those who haven't paid the TV licence, we should stop pursuing them through the court. We need to draw a line under this here. We need to move on. We need to, you know, and, and stop pursuing people through the court. It's, a small, it's, it's very it's hard to understand why I should pay my TV licence if other people don't pay it and there's no consequence for them uh, because I end up paying on the double. Uh, I mean, what did the government give RTE uh, towards the end of last year? 60 million or something? Well, first of all, let me make it clear in terms of if we were in government today, you wouldn't have to pay your TV licence mm. because we would abolish the TV licence. So that's very clear. We would fulfil the recommendations of the expert group on the Commission of Media, which argued that it was abolished. And other countries across Europe and the Commission's report, which is hundreds of pages long, huge detail, and Michael Martin was absolutely wrong in relation to what he said in terms of that they didn't look at the independence of RTE and how they would deal with that, because other countries have moved away from a TV licence and gone from exchequer funding also. And they actually showed how this should happen. They said it shouldn't be on a year-to-year basis, that it should be multi-annual, that it shouldn't be the department or the minister that decides how much money is given to either RTE or other media, mm. that it should be from Commission the Man, which is an independent commission, and it, there should be only deterioration or deviation from that uh, under very, very strict rules. So there mm. is clear c- criteria for there. But as I pointed out to Miel Martin as well, TG Kerr is funded by the Exchequer. TG Kerr isn't funded by the TV license. Mm. TG Kerr gets about 50 million or something like that there every year. Nobody suggests that there is... Uh, okay, but you, you are sending mixed messages, I, I think it's true to say, because you're saying uh, that people should pay their TV licence, but there should be no consequence for people who don't pay their TV licence. No, let, let, let me be clear, Michael, just to be very clear. What Sinn Féin wants is Sinn Féin wants... Uh, the TV licence to be abolished. Mm. We want the recommendations of the expert group to be implemented, which means it will be paid by mm. through the exchequer. We want people not to be pursued through the court. We want to draw a line in no, it. No, I understand that. That's in the future. But but you've, that, to, but you've told us... it would be an amnesty for people who haven't paid their TV licence because people did not wake up and decided, I'm not going to comply with the law. People have stopped paying their TV licence. Would there be a refund for somebody who did pay their TV licence? No, there wouldn't. There wouldn't. OK, and but there'd be an amnesty for those who... When, when an amnesty happens in law, there is never a refund, mm. whether it's uh, tax amnesties that uh, government brought in, in in previous times. But do, do, do you see recognition. the mixed message that's in all of that, no, though, that you're asking people who want to be law-abiding to pay on the double for those who are breaking the law and that there should be no consequence for people who break the law? 
I am not asking people to pay in the double. I'm saying that but if you, we but, were but in that government... Is the, that, that is the upshot of it, because you pay your TV licence and then you pay through your taxes money to the government, which is then given to RTE. And you will be paying through your taxes to pay for that guarda, that judge, that prosecutor sit, to sit in the court and take... OK, so you're paying on the treble. <laughs> Michael, with respect, mm. let me just answer the question. To, to pay for your guardy, which should be doing... He'll bar the work instead of pursuing somebody who didn't pay their TV licence. One in four, as I said, who didn't wake up and decided to be uh, lawbreakers, mm. but actually completely lost trust. And there's a role and responsibility for government in relation to this here. The oversight that was there in terms of RTE by the minister. The, re- the reason this has happened is not the fault of ordinary people who have said, I'm not paying the licence because mm. of what has happened. We're not advocating for people not to pay the licence. People should pay a legal charge that the state has, has, has introduced. What we're saying is that that legal charge needs to go now. And then we need to deal with the fact that one in four people haven't paid the TV licence. And what's the option? The option's here. Let's, 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 let's direct the Gardaí to actually you know, call to people's homes, to drag them before the courts, to tie up our court's time and actually prosecute people uh, you know, and take them to a prison for a couple of hours and let them... That's just nonsense. Okay. It is absolutely nonsense what has happened. And it's not, it's not... It hasn't fallen like... it hasn't. People understand that the only people who are being held accountable in all of this fiasco are the people who haven't paid their TV licence as opposed to the senior executives mm. in RTE, which were using their money as a slush fund in some criteria, whether it was whining and dining or trips far, to far away to watch Ireland playing in, in different mm. types of uh, sporting events. Okay. It's just absolutely... That was the issue that you raised with uh, the Tánaiste through Leaders' Questions last week. Uh, Michal Martin, as we heard there, raised a second issue uh, and uh, the uh, way Sinn Féin representatives uh, have uh, been suing others, I think is the way he put it, uh, defamation cases for the sake of Transparency, it's only right I should mention that uh, former party leader Jerry Adams has an ongoing legal case against this programme. Uh, but uh, when um, Michal Martin criticised Sinn Féin for taking cases against members of the media, uh, correct me if I, I'm wrong, uh, but you responded by saying as much as uh, that's the pot calling the kettle black. What I did was, first of all, and we said this very clearly, people who are defamed, whether you're in politics or whether you're in journalism, and indeed probably journalists are the ones who sue the media most. You know, there's journalists from RTE, journalists from other uh, media who have taken cases against uh, other news stations or other uh, papers and so on and so forth. But people have a right to sue if they are are defamed. In the most instance, when you're defamed, an apology will actually deal with the issue. That's in the most most instances, and sometimes the policy isn't isn't forward. What I said to Michael Martin is he didn't actually utter a word when members of his own parliamentary when his members of his own parliamentary party were suing the media and journalists uh, and I gave a number of names well he didn't utter a word when other members of his parliamentary party were actually threatened to sue the media um, if they didn't do x y or z so like this is uh, you know podcast calling the kettle back people have a right to, uh, to 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 vindicate their good name they will always have that right if Michael Martin thinks that there's something wrong with the defamation laws he's been Keisha. He is conscious. He's in government. Change the laws if that is the case. But like the the, the, uh, the idea that he's trying to suggest that you know that there would be some type of political interference in relation to RTE is absolutely nonsense. What we're arguing for is that we in, we implement the commission's recommendation, which would provide enhanced money for RTE, which would provide that type of independence, which would provide enhanced money for other local radio stations who actually provide. Uh, 
public service content. It, you know, so if he's suggesting that exchequer funding is something that you know uh, would 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 cause questions in terms of the independence of Elf media, then is he suggesting that the commission and all of the experts are wrong? Is he suggesting that Leo Bradker, who gave an interview to one of the papers, which is suggesting this is the way that we should go, is also wrong? Like you know, this is just nonsense and politicking from from Michael Martin, and okay. you know, I just going to have none of it because he nobody nobody mentions the fact that umpteen persons from Pianofile have actually sued media, threatened to sue media. Uh, and indeed journalists. Okay, well, it's resulted in quite a, a number of people contacting us here through our usual means. Uh, we'll come to those comments in a moment, but thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this thank morning. That's uh, Sinn Féin's deputy leader in uh, the doll, Pierce Doherty. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Actually, before I go to those uh, comments, I just want to mention Miriam Lord's article from uh, the Irish Times on Saturday. Very interesting article uh, relating to an event that's taking place today in Leinster House. It's being organised by Independent Senator Sharon Keoghan uh, and it's called... Who Pandemic Treaty Know the Facts? Uh, Apparently the Pooman Pandemic uh, Treaty uh, would result in closer cooperation between countries tackling pandemics uh, according to Miriam Lord, specifically in the crucial areas of prevention, preparedness and response. Uh, But she says when it comes to know the facts uh, that there's a number of conspiracy theorists who argue it's brazen power grab by the World Health Organization, which wants to override governments and impose black blanket measures such as lockdowns, border closures and mass vaccination programs. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, Sharon Kogan has uh, sent out uh, an invitation uh, to all... TDs and senators uh, to join her for this meeting, uh, which she says will include uh, a panel of international experts on the proposed agreement. Doctors, lawyers and politicians from all over the place are coming together uh, to meet today. Uh, And uh, as I say, uh, the politicians have been invited. Uh, There was a response from one political director that Miriam Lord reported on in the Irish Times to independent Senator Sharon Kogan. Uh, In his email, he says, Hi, Senator. Just wanted to check on the details of some of the speakers. Is that Christine Anderson, the alternative for Deutschland MEP you have speaking? Oh, dear. Uh, Is Meryl Ness the main doctor who has had her medical licence suspended for spreading COVID-19 vaccine misinformation. And is Tess Laurie, the person who founded the pseudo-medical organisation World Council for Health that spreads misinformation, discouraging COVID vaccination and promotes ivermectin as a COVID treatment when it is normally used as an anti-parasitic drug for treating worms and river blindness. (laughs) <laughs> Apparently, there was a very courteous reply from Sharon Kogan uh, to that particular person. Uh, uh, Miriam Lord's articles are, are quite often tongue-in-cheek, uh, but I think uh, Sharon Kogan might actually be hosting a meeting of this sort in Leinster House. 
I just wonder, how on earth is that allowed? Anyway, let's uh, go to some of the comments coming to us uh, this morning. David Timmy and Drahada saying, good morning, Michael. Typical Pierce Doherty and Sinn Féin accounting, abolish this, abolish that, no real logical costings, and how TV and media is going to be financed. Typical opposition politics, offer everything on a plate, but don't bag it up with sound, balanced, well-measured and backed up financial budgetary facts. God help us. Let's see how the country will fare with such money management when eventually Sinn Féin will be in power. History will judge, says David Toomey in Drogheda. Many thanks uh, for your text to the programme uh, as well. Thanks too to Peter and Dog, who says there's two things I'm curious about. Uh, Zenak Burke still in prison and uh, to where did D Forbes disappear to? Uh, ask Peter. I think yes and uh, on sick leave are the answers. Uh, uh, as far as I know, Peter. Um, we'd another WhatsApp message from somebody who says, Michael, sorry for being so downbeat, but this country has gone to the dogs. Seem to remember that if you went to an A&E in the 80s, you weren't a whole day there on a, a trolley. Anyway, Michael, RTA and their employees can pop off to other shores with no accountability, but Ryan Tuberty was the only fall guy in this organisation. How do the government expect people to pay their TV licence? That's like asking revenue to pay back money that they're in the guise of the TV licence. It's taxpayers' money that has funded this organisation. That message comes to us from Margaret. Thank you indeed, Margaret, as well. 041-983-2000, our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp 086-1800-658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing in the morning, a study for Cyber Safe Kids has found 24% of children who are six already own their own smartphone. 28% of parents are using parental controls. Uh, the survey is being published to mark International Safer Internet Day. And let's hear uh, about the challenges that this poses all of us in this day and age. Fiona Jennings is Head of Policy with the ISPCC. And a very good morning to you, Fiona, and thank you indeed for joining us on this, the 21st anniversary of Safer Internet Day. That's a point that you're making today uh, because we've had this technology for some time, but we're still grappling with it, aren't we? Yes, good morning, Michael. Yes, as you said, it's the 21st year of Safer Internet Day and we're delighted to be celebrating it um, with children and young people from across Ireland here at Microsoft Stream Space. Um, So coordinated um, by the Safer Internet Centre, which is made up of WebWise, ISPCC, Hotline.ie and National Parents Council. Okay, Uh, and... Obviously, the concern uh, is about the negative potential of going online, particularly for children. There's so many positives uh, involved with us having the Internet as part of our lives. Uh, But the younger the child, I suppose, the higher the concerns. Are you surprised to learn that almost a quarter of six-year-olds have a smartphone? Yeah, we are. I mean, that the amount of children and young people, I suppose their technology is such a big part of their world today. Um, and children are accessing, I suppose, you know, technology and internet-enabled devices for lots of different reasons. And I guess the focus of our event here today is around the team tech in our world. So the young people from the WebWise Youth Panel who set the agenda are very much looking, I suppose, they're future-focused. And they really want to learn about, you know, new technologies like generative AI 
and the role that it's going to have in their future careers and also in their future lives as well. All right. So we're you've, really you've, looking you've, forward you've to just con- more. You've just confused all the old footy duddies. Listen, <laughs> what, what, what is generative AI? So AI, so artificial intelligence technology. So the role that that's going to play um, in their lives today. So it would have exploded, I suppose, onto the scene in the last 12 months. And there's been much talk around how it might, you know, replace jobs as we know it today, replace our way of working. So for the young people of the WebWise panel, part of the Irish Safer Internet Centre, they really wanted to learn more about this technology and I suppose the opportunities that it's going to bring them, but also the concerns or risks that might be associated with it as well. Mm. Now, there's already been a a lot of concern about it in terms of... uh, school and studies and exams and uh, I think uh, there's uh, the possibility of having uh, the internet write your thesis for you Uh, but can that be turned around to be a good thing and that it would be used as an effective tool for people uh, in order that they save time? Oh I think and that's that's where I suppose the focus is in terms of the opportunities that would be available to us so for the different career paths that children and people are going down and you know for example in the area of law where you would have a lot of case law legislation to review that there's certainly a role that AI can play in that I'm sure um, and that's the focus uh, today uh, as you say with uh, young people that you're meeting up with right uh, across uh, the country and to look at the positives of the internet uh, and all that uh, is available to them. But what about um, the survey? I, I, I take it uh, that six-year-olds aren't particularly interested in AI. Uh, have you any insight as to what six-year-olds are doing on their phones, Fiona? Yeah, so in terms of the, the children and young people, what we would hear about how they're engaging with such technologies, often it is around, you know, gaming um, and the different games that I suppose are um, made for their particular age group. Um, so what we would say is that, you know, for parents as well to, you know, have a better understanding as to the types of, you know, apps and games that their children and young people are using, the reasons why they're using them and what they find interesting about them. And to support parents as well, the ISPCC has what we call the Digital Ready Hub, which was really created for parents to get them to kind of think about, you know, the ways that their children and young people are using these technologies and for them to upskill themselves as well. Mm. So we developed the Digital Ready Hub around the whole thing that, you know, parents don't know what they don't know. And we're hoping that, you know, the Digital Ready Hub or, you know, the parents content that WebWise has or the National Parents Council has, that, you know, they're able to start conversations themselves among themselves and also with their children and young people as well. Mm. And if they don't know what their children are doing, if parents don't know what their children are doing, whether the children are six or are ten, uh, their children are at risk, aren't they? I mean, there's all sorts of bad things happen on the internet that could be groomed, cyberbullying, pornography, or even uh, finding themselves uh, being directed towards sites uh, that would encourage self-harm. Yes, there's, there's certainly, you know, there's opportunities. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. She's out there, but as you said, Michael, there's plenty of risks out there as well. You know, that children and young people, I suppose they need to, they need to learn about these risks as they would in the offline world. Um, but understand as well, I suppose, how different it can be in the online world as well, how content can spread much quicker and how it can be engaged with at a larger audiences. And also as well, I suppose, you know, when they do get older, the content that they're maybe searching and looking up and how that in turn then can serve them up other type of content as well. So it's really important and that's part of our part of what we're doing here today as well to encourage children and young people to really be critical about you know what they're viewing online and what um the content that i suppose they're served up as well to really try and question you know where that is coming from is it a reliable source you know can i go somewhere else to check it out as well okay fiona thank you indeed uh for joining us uh, this morning just before you go maybe uh you'd uh, uh highlight the three ors. i just have uh, some breaking news that i'll bring to our listeners in a moment but uh, you're asking people uh to uh look at three ors today yeah so truly really to recognize um you know what they're looking for at you know, to to better understand i mean i suppose when content is served up to them and also as well to relate it back to what they're doing on a day-to-day basis Okay, Fiona, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Fiona Jennings, Head of Policy with the ISPCC. Uh, I'm uh, sad to bring you uh, the news. Uh, I was a bit distracted there speaking to Fiona, but uh, I've just been handed uh, some breaking news. Former Taoiseach John Bruton has passed away at the age of 76. Uh, the former Fine Gael leader was uh, the Taoiseach, of course, from 1994 to 1997. Mr. Bruton's family have released a statement and in the past few minutes, uh, the Bruton family have said, it is with deep sadness we wish to announce the death of a former Taoiseach, John Bruton. He died peacefully in the Matter Private Hospital in Dublin, surrounded by his loving family early this morning following a long illness. He was a good husband, a good father and a true patriot. We will miss him greatly. John is survived by his wife, Finola, son Matthew and daughters, Juliana, Emily and Mary Elizabeth, grandchildren, sons-in-laws, his brother Richard and sister, Mary, nieces, nephews, many cousins and extended family. Uh, As I say, that's uh, literally 
uh, just been handed to me. Uh, that's a, a statement released uh, by the family of John Bruton in the last few minutes. Uh, the death of uh, the former Taoiseach has been announced and uh, I'm sure uh, there'll be much reaction uh, following uh, that uh, news uh, this morning uh, and we'll have more on that through the day uh, in our bulletins. The death of John Bruton. He has passed away at the age of 76. Michael Reed on LMFM. Earlier in the programme, uh, we heard arguments for you to vote yes and yes in the referendums on the 8th of March. In a moment, we're going to hear arguments for you to vote no and no in the same referendums. We're joined by Patter Tobin, Ain to Linder and founder and a, a TD for Meath West. Good morning to you, Patter. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, before we talk uh, about uh, referendums, uh, the death of former Taoiseach John Bruton has just been announced at the age of 76. Uh, I'm sure uh, people listening to us uh, this morning are very shocked at uh, this uh, breaking news. Um, uh, I, I think John Bruton, uh, whilst he was uh, such a huge figure in Irish politics, I, I think his time in national politics probably would have uh, preceded your time uh, on a national platform, would it it did. I'm, I'm very shocked to hear of the death of, of John Bruton and, you know, deepest sympathies uh, to the whole Bruton family and uh, all his friends and, and relations. Um, obviously, John was a, 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 one of the most significant figures in Irish politics when I was growing up. Um, indeed, I didn't share uh, the doll with him uh, at any stage. But when I was a, a young person interested in politics, uh, John was definitely a giant of Irish politics. And... Um, you know, coming from County Meath, he stood very strongly for his his beliefs. You know, his Fine Gael, uh, blood was was very strong within him, and he stood by that. Um, he was, a, I think, a conviction politician as well. Um, he wasn't a, one of these politicians that put the finger in the air to find out which way the wind is blowing. He stood up for what he believed in, and he held the highest office. You know, um, in 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 the Dáil. Uh, during that time, he also obviously played a significant role in the European stage. I would have disagreed with him probably on a number of issues, but you know, even within that disagreement, it would be impossible to to not recognise the fact that he was a, a person deeply committed to um, you know public service uh, and to uh, his his ideology and his convictions and to the people of County Meath as well. So it's a yeah. it's a very sorry day. In a, and he really was a, a local politician who believed that all politics is local. When he was uh, the European uh, ambassador to the United States, I remember him making contact with this programme uh, and asking that he, he could come on and give out about how unfair the cost of travelling on the train uh, was for many people. Uh, and that was the kind of issue that he would have always been focused on, regardless of what position he held. Yeah, I, I had the, uh, the pleasure to meet him a few times uh, on different panels that I was involved in, in debates uh, on television and radio. And um, definitely, um, while obviously he had, you know, he was a very committed European, uh, he was a very committed Irishman, um, there's no doubt you could sense that he had a very strong sense of, of, of where he was from, the pot he was boiled in as such. And, uh, and like any successful politician, he was very focused on, on, on those issues too. He realised that, you can't forget your your base. If you forget your base, you're you're going to be in trouble uh, in the long run uh, as well. So, you know, it's incredible because you know, way back till the, the 1980s, when I was 
only a youngster getting interested in in politics. Um, this was a, a giant on the stage, mm. and uh, it's uh, very, very sad to see his passing today. Absolutely. May he rest in peace and uh, sympathies, as you say, to the family, friends, sure. and uh, indeed many of constituents uh, who will be very sad to hear the news uh, that uh, we've just learned of, which is uh, the passing of the former Taoiseach John Bruton at the age of 76. As I mentioned earlier, uh, we heard the arguments for a yes-yes vote on the 8th of March. Uh, you'll be asking people, Paratobian, though, to vote no-no. Perhaps you tell us why. Yeah, I'm very disappointed uh, in the government's um, amendments. I was hopeful that there could be uh, amendments written for the Constitution that would have been more inclusive, uh, that would have brought the, the language, much of the language in these particular articles are archaic, um, that would have brought that language up to date in terms of contemporary life, um, but would have strengthened the the rights of people uh, within society. But actually, what we've got really is, you know, the government creating um, amendments that ex- are exceptionally poorly written. The language of these amendments are so unclear, they're so confused, that nobody really knows what exactly they mean. Uh, and in actual fact, they forget about the um the, the rights of people who are in, in need. Um, so, for example, in, in the care referendum, um, in my experience, the majority of people that I meet um, who have families in need are people who are getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning, they're dropping their kid off at a childcare uh, at 7, they're commuting for an hour and a half to Dublin, they're doing an eight-hour day, and they're coming back and doing the opposite that evening. And they're, when I speak to them, they say to me that they are forced by economic necessity to be on this incredibly difficult uh, treadmill to pay enormous uh, rents and enormous mortgages. They would love to be able to spend more time potentially with their family, but they don't have a choice to do that. And it's funny because I heard the minister talk about, you know, a woman's place is wherever she wants to be, and I couldn't agree more with the minister. But the fact that so many mothers in in this state would like to spend, especially in the early years of their children's lives, more time with their children, but they can't because the government is forcing them out of the home uh, in relation to this. And the second issue is that the, this particular uh, amendment deletes the word woman from that section of the Constitution, and it also deletes the word home. And I would have liked if the government had just added father into that uh, particular amendment to obviously recognize the fact that many fathers make an, an enormous contribution also uh, in the home. But the fact that they've deleted the word woman, I think, is, is, is quite shocking because the same government wanted to, to delete the word woman from maternity legislation. We know in education, for example, teachers have been advised not to use the words mother and father because they say it's not as inclusive enough or not to use the word boys and girls in, in, in schools. And, you know, we've seen the HSE also delete the word woman in, in terms of cervical check. Mm. And I just think it's, it's, it's a really bad uh, way to do politics, to delete the identity of 50% of the population from our constitution. Because, you know, we need to make sure that you know, women have fought for, for rights uh, in terms of working, in terms mm. of health care, in terms of, of life. So much in this society over the last 100 years, 
And the idea now that we're seeing that deletion happening, uh, does I think it matter? a retrograde step. D- d- does it matter? Uh, and uh, the reason I ask you that is because of all of the people who get up at six o'clock in the morning in County Mead and spend a couple of hours travelling, an eight-hour day and back again, uh, another couple of hours travelling. Uh, that's through economic necessity. As it stands, the Constitution says that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labour to the neglect of their duties in the home. So whilst that is enshrined in the Constitution, it doesn't have any real impact on the lives of everyday people. Well, first of all, you know, Judge Susan Denham, who was um, a Supreme Court judge and a later Chief Justice, uh, she actually stated, first of all, that this article, first of all, does not assign women to a domestic role. And she actually said that uh, it recognises the significant role played by uh, mothers and women in the home. And it wasn't an exclusion in any way to to other activities. And other people within uh, the courts previously have said that this country has seen different uh, approaches to mm-hmm. things like children's allowance, um, etc., because of the basis where this set out a responsibility to at least uh, allow for a choice mm. to women to be able to um, to work in the home if they so want. So, so, so why don't women have that choice now? That's the thing that I can't understand. Yep. You, you, they should not be obliged, this is what it actually says, by economic necessity to go to work. Uh, but people have to go to work out of an economic necessity. Yeah, well, I, first of all, I do agree that the uh, the right in the Constitution is not exercised properly, is not defended enough uh, by politicians, and in actual fact, we need to defend that right more. But actually, deleting it reverses, even from the objective of defending that right. So, where I would like to see is a a, a recognition of the work that fathers and mothers uh, do mm. in the home, which is a really important job, and it often gets completely unrecognized within society. And in actual fact, the strength of our society often is based upon mm. the work that mothers and fathers but what, uh, do. What, what about home. sisters, brothers, and children? Uh, there's a lot of children caring for people. Yeah, and, and this is the other issue here, again. like So oftentimes we have a government that, what I would say, flies a, a virtue-signaling flag, but when you look at it, it's actually really a hollow uh, empty husk of a promise because, you know, <clears throat> you've heard me on this before, childcare facilities are closing in this country now on a weekly basis. Nursing homes are closing in this country. Children in state care are being put into uh, unregulated uh, care providers at the moment. You know, if, if we have never been as poor in terms of providing um, um, care for people who need it within the state, and we're actually seeing in reality, in experiences in people's lives, a reversal in the provision of care for people with disabilities in this country, where people are fighting to try and get Mm. any care uh, they can for family members who have a disability. And yet this government, completely detached from that reality, is, you know, putting up a flagpole, which is really just a mere marketing ploy in terms of uh, what image it seeks to portray to people. And what we're saying is that... Is it not recognition? Because, uh, I mean, as you say, uh, we have these articles in the Constitution, but we don't give effect to them. Uh, But what we do presently is give recognition to woman. Uh, As Thomas Byrne pointed out, I had said women earlier, but it is to woman. Uh, But that's to be replaced by members of a family to one another by reason of the bonds that exist among them. So that would include uh, the brothers and the sisters and the children and so on. 
I'd, I'd have no problem in broadening that. But the problem is what we're seeing is a deletion, not an addition. And, you know, mothers' relationships with their children are of a different order um, in, in reality to those other relationships. The, the level of sacrifice uh, that mothers make for their children. You know, mothers are special. It's not, just a, it's not just a Mother's Day card idea. You know, mothers are special in terms of the relationships with their children. And I think that needs to be recognised. The other element here is this government did promise to have a constitutional amendment on, you know, the right to a home, the right to a house. It's refusing to to uh, give that constitutional amendment and is actually deleting one of the few places in the constitution that actually mentions the home. And the home is an important place and should have constitutional uh, recognition. So like, I'm just amazed that the government were just so poor in, in writing these amendments. Like, If I gave the objective to a secondary school child to, to write an amendment for the constitution and they provided this level of material I'd accept that, but it is completely unacceptable from the Minister. Okay, there are two referendums we've been talking about. The Care Amendment, as it'll be known. Uh, The other one is the Family Amendment, uh, which at the moment talks about guarding with special care the institution of marriage. We're going to change that to recognising the family, whether founded on marriage or on other durable relationships. Uh, You mentioned a problem with language. Uh, Is that one example? I think, Michael, this is so startling that people are shocked in relation to the, the minister. The minister has been asked exactly what durable relationships mean, and the minister hasn't been able to properly answer it. And has actually stated that, well, we'll find out when a judge makes a decision in the constitutional case in the future, which is kind of a, re- a reverse of good law as a reverse of democracy. Anytime you see a piece of legislation, it's the first part of the legislation, it has clear definitions of what each word means so that people know what they're putting into law. In this case, we don't see that. And the idea that you know, people shouldn't decide what meanings they put into the Constitution, but a judge should decide in the future is incredible. You know, we've heard uh, Mary Baker, who's the chairperson of the Referendum Commission, actually state that it could mean people who get uh, wedding invitations or Christmas cards. Um, would fall under the category category of um, durable relationships. I'd like I would have liked to have seen the the definition of the, ma- of the family broadened because there are many single parents in society who do a wonderful job in, in raising and um, their children. And yet, durable relationships doesn't necessarily include single parents at all uh, in in that category. The only time durable relationships has come up in a Supreme Court judgment, it was with Mary Baker, and it wasn't. Include, inclusive of single parents uh, in that uh, situation. And it's just, you know, there's been these bizarre debates in the doll about does it mean throuples or not? And, the, the, you know, it's like you, you feel like you're in a parallel universe discussing a constitutional amendment in such a crazy type language situation. But again, you know, we don't know what exactly uh, it will mean uh, in the future. It's, 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 it's very, very, very um, odd that a government would ask to put in such loose language. You know, Junior Minister Jennifer Carol McNeil stated that, you know, there are durable relationships that are intimate personal relationships for sure, but there are also durable relationships that are friendships or relationships that people have been working uh, uh, amongst work colleagues uh, as well. Um, I just think that if a government is going to make a constitutional amendment and they're for real about actually making a difference in people's lives, it should be clear, precise, and properly defined. And I think it's, it, it is literally an insult to the Irish public that the government would ask them to uh, invest you know, millions of euros 
holding a referendum on an issue that nobody can actually understand what it means. Okay, no doubt we'll be hearing many more arguments on both sides of both proposed amendments to the Constitution. You're asking people to vote no and no to both proposals. And thank you indeed for making the arguments with us this morning. Thank That's you. the leader and founder of AIM2, Petter Tobin, who is a TD for Mead West. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing uh, this morning, uh, former Taoiseach uh, John Bruton has uh, passed away at uh, the age of uh, 76. Uh, a statement uh, has uh, been released uh, by the Bruton family reflecting all of this. Uh, it says that he died peacefully in the Matter Hospital in Dublin, surrounded by his loving family early this morning following a long illness. Uh, it's with deep sadness that uh, the family have made this announcement. A good husband, good father, a true patriot. Uh, he'll be missed greatly. Uh, survived by Finola, son Matthew, daughters Juliana, Emily, Mary Elizabeth and grandchildren, son-in-laws. His brother Richard Bruton, of course, and sisters Mary, nieces, nephews, many cousins and extended family. Uh, it is... Uh, Uh, Not the news uh, that we expected to be bringing to you this morning. Um, Let's uh, get some local reaction. Fine Gael TD for Loud and Mead East. Fergus O'Dowd is on the line. And a very good morning to you, Fergus, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, You'd have known John Bruton pretty well, I'm sure, over the years. Yes, indeed. It's it's very, very sad. and It's very very unexpected. I know he's been sick for a while. It's a great shock to all of us in the Parliamentary Party, particularly to his wife, Finola, his son, Matthew, his daughters, Julianne, Emily, and Mary Elizabeth. He was obviously a Mead TD. He was a power of strength. A power of strength. He had a brilliant mind. He was a determined, focused person all his life. And he served the people of Mead, and I have to say the people of Loud, extremely well for many, many years. I knew him when I was a senator. I was obviously a strong supporter of his. And I was very sorry when he lost the leadership, but, you know, he recovered and he went forward and became the European ambassador, uh, the EU ambassador in America. But he was always uh, a man that was held in great respect. He always, Michael, he always said his views, whatever they were. And he talked deeply about Ireland and about the North and about Ireland's future. And he would be a huge loss, a huge loss to his wife, his family and to politics generally. I was very sad. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to cut across you there, Uh, Fergus. I was talking to you last week about uh, train fares uh, becoming cheaper for people locally uh, towards the end of the year. I would imagine that John Bruton was delighted about that because I was just mentioning it earlier on when he was the EU ambassador to the European Union. A huge job with so many issues on his plate. He was in touch with this programme on his local radio station, LMFM, complaining about the cost of getting a train from Laytown to Dublin in comparison to getting a train from Balbriggan. Yes, um, he was right and uh, thankfully, hopefully, it's been dealt with appropriately. Now, he was also he was always very interested in, in meeting people. Even when he was Taoiseach, if he had a half hour, he would stop and knock doors wherever he would be. He was always in contact with the public. He never lost the, the, the common touch. But he, he was always ap- approachable. And I would say he, he had a powerful intellect, like I think, never to be underestimated his grasp of policy and issues. He also, I understood, he was a fluent French speaker. He read French newspapers daily. He was extremely well-versed on international affairs. 
you know, he was he was an outstanding leader of Fine Gael and an outstanding teacher. And, um, you know, I, I knew him, obviously, as a, as a councillor and as a senator, and obviously later when I was a TD. And um, he was always approachable. And um, I know that, you know, people, all I can say is that just, he was he, he was just a, a towering strength, a towering, you know, intellect, uh, somebody you could disagree with, and he would argue the toss with you. Uh, but he was, you know, he, he was a remarkable politician with convictions, which is rare enough these days, Michael. Um, he would have been very pleased uh, that the Stormont institutions uh, were restored over the weekend, I'm sure. He would have been because he was a great believer, obviously, in respecting unionism, very much respecting unionism and finding a way forward on peace. And obviously, he would have been Taoiseach during the time of, you uh, know, during the IRA campaign. Uh, so he was well aware of, of, you know, of all the people, all the suffering, all the horror that was the north of Ireland. And he would be very happy. Uh, I would say that they, you know, that the that everybody is getting together again, a new administration in the north, and you know that the road, you know, the road for, for working together is the only road. You know, he would have he would have wanted, you know, that we would be we would share and work together. And that's what's happening now. Mm, a, a great loss locally uh, and indeed nationally and uh, such a, a significant uh, player on the world stage. Uh, he got involved in the Brexit campaign uh, as well uh, and uh, certainly made his views known in Westminster on behalf of uh, people in County Mead and across the country for that matter. He did, yes. And I mean, he was, as I said, like, if he believed in something, you would hear his voice, you know, and he mm. wouldn't, he, he wouldn't be shy about saying uh, what he thought. And, you know, obviously people that speak their minds are never universally popular, They're universally respected, obviously. But like, he, he had the force of argument and he had the conviction. I can remember the first meeting of the Parliamentary Party in Finnegan, I was asked, and we're in a different room to where we are now, uh, but you know, he stood at the dais in the middle of the room and he spoke ex cathedra and everybody everybody, you know, just listened to his words because he was um you know, he, 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 he had the capacity to you know, to really deliver, you know, a convincing approach to life. And I would say like he was a he was a modest man in every respect. He was on a personal level, he was always approachable. And I know that, you know, the people in Mead in particular knew that he served them. He never stopped working for them. And, you know, he was always, he was always, you know, he was always attending meetings. He was always, uh, he knew everybody and everybody knew him. And he was, you know, he also had that, he had a good sense of humour as well. And like all of us, Michael, he was well able to, to laugh at himself at times as well. But he was, you know, he was a minister when he was in his 20s. Mm. You know, and he, oh, he politics very, was in his blood, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was in mm. his blood, absolutely. Yeah. And Richard, his brother, mm. uh, you know, was a great supporter of John's as well. And Richard obviously would keenly feel his loss more than any other politician, obviously, because he served so loyally and so well, uh, John, over the years. Okay, Fergus, thank you indeed uh, for uh, joining. Thank you, Marshall, for having me on. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, very sad news uh, this morning. Uh, the death of former Taoiseach John Bruton.
Michael Reed on LMFM. We'll have further tributes uh, to the late John Bruton later in the programme. Time now, though, as is usual around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit uh, to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with uh, those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr joins us for this week's report from Navin Garda Station and a very good morning to you and thank you for doing so. We're going to begin with a burglary that occurred in Rathoth. Yes, good morning, Michael. On Saturday the 3rd of February, between 7.30 and 8.30pm at Fox Lodge Manor in Rathoth, the injured party in this case returned home to find his house ransacked. Um, entry had been gained by forcing the rear kitchen window and only a, a small amount of cash was taken, thankfully. So we're appealing to listeners this morning who may have been in the Rathoth area, in particular Fox Lodge Manor, Last Saturday, around 7.30 to 8.30 p.m., did you see something or someone suspicious in the area? And if so, contact uh, Ashburn Garda Station. And to Dundalk next, where Garda are investigating a burglary. Yeah, unfortunately, the next three incidents are all burglaries and all occurred in the Dundalk area. So on Saturday, the 3rd of February, at approximately quarter to six in the evening, at Marsh Road, Belurgan, Dundalk, a female and her daughter returned home to find the upstairs bedrooms in their home had been ransacked and entry was gained through a downstairs window. Now, some of cash was taken and there was no further damage to the property. So just a reminder to the listeners, it's not a good idea to keep large sums of cash in your home. And to recap, this occurred at Marsh Road, Belurgan, Dundalk at approximately 5.45pm on Saturday the 3rd of February and any information on that should be directed to Dundalk Guard Station. Okay, as you say, that's the first of three such burglaries in the town. Yes, again on Saturday the 3rd of February, between 4pm and 10pm at Castle Ross, Castletown Road in Dundalk, Gardy received a call that a burglary had taken place. The occupants of the house uh, returned to find the rear sliding door had been smashed. The upstairs bedrooms were ransacked and a significant amount of cash and jewellery were taken. Again, Gardaí, you're investigating this and any information from the public would be very much appreciated. And also, there's always the Garda Confidential line on one 800 one. Okay, and a, a third burglary, as you say. Yeah, the final burglary also took place on the 3rd of February between 6.30 and 7pm on the Newry Road, Dowdalt Hill and Dundalk. This time, uh, access was gained through the front door by two people. They first tried to pry the door open and then they broke the glass. So jewellery and cash were taken from the upstairs bedroom. And now the two men were gone when Gardy arrived. So if listeners this morning were in the Dadalt Hill area of Dundalk and saw two men acting suspiciously or remember seeing something that may help the Gardy, please pick up the phone and call Dundalk Garda Station. OK, and just to conclude, uh, a reminder for anybody uh, who thinks a career in the force might soothe them that Ungarda Síochána is recruiting. That's right. As regards guard recruitment, the closing day for this is the 8th of February. So there's more information on this on publicjobs.ie or garda.ie where the whole process is explained. So we actively encourage applicants from all eligible candidates uh, aged 18 to 50 and we're also an inclusive organisation and we're seeking a diverse cohort for future Gardaí, which is fully reflective of the society we now serve. Okay, thank you indeed. Garda Fiona Kerr of Navin Garda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, as you've been hearing, the death of former Taoiseach and Fine Gael TD John Bruton was announced this morning. Mr Bruton died 
peacefully in the Matter Hospital, surrounded by his family. We'll be speaking with the Minister for Justice in the next few moments. Yulita Clancy of the Meath Peace Group joins us now, though. And a very good morning to you, Yulita, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on this sad day. Uh, news that has come to many people as a surprise, I think, this morning. Yes, yes, and good morning, Michael, and to your listeners. And yeah, I only just heard the news there, and it's extremely sad news, and our condolences to Fanola and all the family. Um, I knew he had been ill, um, but I hadn't heard in recent months how he was, and um, it, it is it, it, it is very sad to hear. Okay. Mr. Bruton, obviously a significant player in the peace process, a process, though, that wasn't always easy for him. Uh, I think he uh, developed a, a relationship uh, with uh, Jerry Adams uh, and uh, the Sinn Féin leadership. Uh, uh, but uh, the main goal was his objective, and that was to bring about uh, a silence to the guns and peace on the island. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, he's, I think I think history will 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 will. Uh, judge him better than sometimes at the time, but that he was, for us particularly, um, uh, when we started our group in 1993, um, he was, he gave, I I think he gave great leadership and vision at the time because he saw well ahead uh, the problems in relation to Northern Ireland. I mean, apart from him being a very great local TD, and we all have benefited from that when he was RTD here in Meath, but but then when as Taoiseach and uh, before and after that, he did always show look great leadership and you know things that we've come to learn now as we can see with Stormont having finally reopened again recently, um, and I'm sure if he were aware he would have been delighted to have heard that, um, but he was he was always on top of it. I mean he got he got a lot of criticism sometimes for a lot of name calling if I can recall, but he was there during a really, really difficult time as Taoiseach in, you know, the breakdown of the ceasefire, the start of the all party talks, all of that. And he held the line and um uh, gave great leadership at the time and continued afterwards always like even I think even during last year he was writing columns in the Irish Times as well and he, he actually rang up me, um Oh, it would have been um, uh, last April when Meath County Council were holding a kind of a commemoration of the celebration of the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And I had tried to get him to come along and Rory Montgomery was giving the address. And John, even though he was ill, rang me to apologise and to send us all our best wishes. And uh, I very much value that. But I remember at times when we were just starting off and we'd write to him and he always gave us great encouragement. And when we were, you know, doing things like observing disputed parades up in Fermanagh, I'd always get a report written and send it to him and he'd always respond and, um, you know, on what had happened at that. He was always very interested and... um, he was, um, I felt he really gave great leadership at that time. You know, his relationship with John Major was very crucial. All of that. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and indeed, uh, created the foundations for the peace process. Yes, he did. He did. And it's not often acknowledgement, uh, acknowledged. And he did see the broader, he, you know, he, he, he. I remember people calling him, um, I don't know, they called him pro-Brit and all of this, which 
course, wasn't true. He was very much an Irish nationalist too. And he just saw the need to include all. And it took us a long time to get to that. I mean, the Good Friday Agreement tried to do that. But as you saw, it kept breaking down. I mean, in the last 25 years, so many times. And it has broken down on that. I think a lot that the lack of work being done in reconciliation and in bringing people together. But I think he would have been cheered by some of the speeches there, uh, which were mm. more inclusive, I felt, um, <clears throat> than has been the case uh, uh, at many times. And let's hope that that will, you know, that his vision will see fruition too, because he, he did see that. He saw the need to be inclusive and have respect for all sides and to bring in all identities. And that's really what he was doing. He was trying to show us that. And then at the time of the IRA, the ceasefire breakdown in early 1996, in February 96, he gave great leadership at that time. It was a really, really difficult time for, for the nation. Mm. Um, and he gave great leadership and held the line. And, you know, we had the death, the killings of Jerry McCabe that year as well. And in more or less, he had left office when the IRA did decide to go on ceasefire and allow Sinn Féin into the all-party talks. But he had held the line on that. I remember people, you know, trying to urge him in other ways that they should be allowed into the talks without, de- without sorry, going on ceasefire. And he was right on that, um, that they had to be, they had to stop. And, um, uh, you know, that did lead to, um, and the, obviously, a year later, the, the Good Friday Agreement. So he laid the foundations, him and his government at that time. Indeed. Thank you, Yulita. Uh, nice to talk to you very as always. Sad yeah, very and sad our, day. Very sad day. Yeah, Our absolutely. deepest sympathies to his family now, and he will be well remembered. And, and, and oh, yeah. Of course. Thank All you, right. Mike. Thank, Thank you, you very much indeed. Yulita Clancy of the Meath Peace Group. Now, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, joins us. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on this sad day, a day to remember uh, your former party leader, former Taoiseach, uh, John Bruton. Uh, 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 how well would you have known Mr. Bruton? Well, look, do you know, Michael, I, I got to know him over the years, um, in more recent years, quite well. Um, and, and I really just want to offer my deepest condolences to his wife, Anola, and to, to all of their children, Matthew. Um, and he had three daughters, Emily, Mary Elizabeth uh, and Julianne. But obviously my colleague Richard, uh, who I work closely with, and, and his sister Mary. Um, you know, he, he was such a big presence in the county for, for so many years. Um, and that remained. Um, and personally, it's something that I, I really felt no matter where I went, no matter what part of the county that I went to, people always had stories about John and the work that he had done for them. But he himself was always someone who, um, you know, still was out and about and loved meeting with people. And certainly he was a support to me, not just in my own elections and, and actually launched my, my election campaign uh, back in 2016. But he would still come out campaigning and knocking on doors and you know, just loved to meet people. People are always surprised to see him on doors because you don't expect to have a knock on the door and a former Taoiseach uh, to be there standing talking to you. But I think it was a measure of him that he, no matter what role he was in, what position he was in, he still loved being out on the ground, talking to people and listening to people above all. He was someone mm. who um, was a great listener while he had so much knowledge and was certainly able to express his views and to do so clearly. He was always someone who listened and took in what people had to say and, and 
you know, I think that's why he was so well liked. Yeah. You know, people mm-hmm. knew that he had so so much knowledge himself, but he also listened. And personally, that's something that I felt of him. He would have always yeah. sent me a text or sent me an email or, you know, given me his views on things, but always had the time then for me to, to call him and to ask for his opinion and to, to listen to my own views as well. So mm. um, he would be missed. And, and certainly, as I said, I am... I, um, you know, my, my deepest sympathies to his family because he was a young man, really. Um, mm, yeah. You know, at 76, um, people are living much longer these days and 76 is is, is very young to lose, uh, to lose such a fantastic yeah. person. Uh, and he really listened, but didn't just listen. Uh, uh, I mean, that speaking uh, about John Bruton from the other side uh, where we'd receive politicians' press releases. Uh, I was often amazed by some of uh, the press releases uh, that would have John Bruton's name attached to do with potholes or footpaths or or different very parochial issues. Uh, There was no issue too small for him. If it was of concern to people, he was concerned. No, and, you know, he remembered every single person and he remembered every house that he called to and every road that he went down and... You know, he was able to tell a story. It was only said to me recently that, you know, when we were out campaigning with him, I think we were knocking on doors out somewhere rural and no matter what door you called to, they had a story or he had a story and he was able to remember whether it was from 10 years ago or 35 years ago. Um, and again, I think that's, that's why he did so well and that's why he was in politics for so long because all politics is local. So no matter what position you hold, no matter what post you are, whether it's the very highest or otherwise, um, to be able to talk to people about the, the day-to-day issues that matter to them um, is a really important trait um, and a really special trait, I think. So, uh, as I said, no matter where you went in the county, uh, people had stories, or he had stories, and certainly within the Fine Gael family as well. Um, he's someone who, who gave people time and, um, you know, contributed in, in so many different ways. But, you know, he was such a big figure internationally as well, uh, I'll always remember when my own father got into politics, it was uh, following a by-election when John Bruton was elected as uh, European ambassador to Washington. Um, and it was such a, a huge post, but he was so well recognised internationally, but so well respected as well. Um, and a post that certainly I know he, he revered in and, and he absolutely loved. But, you know, he came back home then again and was never shy with giving his time, whether it was discussions on Brexit, whether it was issues that we were going through in our own government, you know, he was always there and willing. And I know uh, a willing uh, contributor to, to to what was going on, whether it was to myself, whether it was to Shukli or Radker, whoever it was that, that uh, sought any advice, uh, he was always willing to give us. Um, okay. and, you know, yeah. I, I think people certainly in, in, in years gone by as well might not realise, but when he was Taoiseach, um, while it was for three years, our economy flourished uh, and really we went from uh, having no growth in our economy to uh, I think it was close to a thousand jobs a week being created and, and that lays so much of the foundation uh, for what we saw happening later on in the, the, the 90s and the early noughties so you know mm-hmm. he, he contributed in so many ways I think that people don't uh, really realise or later generations don't realise but okay. um, it's, it's a sad day for politics. Minister, I know you've uh, stepped out of uh, the Cabinet meeting uh, this morning to pay tribute uh, to John Bruton. Thank you for doing that with us uh, and uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. Uh, 
and uh, our sympathies uh, once again uh, to Finola and uh, the wife of uh, the former Taoiseach and Meath TD, John Bruton, uh, whose death has been announced. Mr Bruton passed away early this morning at the Matter Private Hospital in Dublin, surrounded by his loving family at the age of 76. That's uh, where we leave you for today. Uh, our time has run out in us once again. Thanks uh, to Maggie McGuire who researched. Paul McKenna was in the control tower. I'm Michael and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 